if you are in such a position where you have to decide how you're going to run our government, if your argument against against having God in charge is, well, that's authoritarian, the federal government shouldn't get to decide, your only alternative to that is that anyone for themselves gets to decide. While that sounds good, and this is why a lot of people are libertarian, it sounds good, but then you'll have libertarians that oppose abortion and you're like, you know, that doesn't really make any sense because a libertarian is supposed to believe in ultimate freedom. And yet you've, you've started saying, well, there is actually a time where I guess ultimate freedom isn't good. And, and I look at them and I say, yeah, when it opposes God. You have to have the foundational basis and understanding that if you want a successful nation, we have to stop being afraid. If the worst thing that happens to us is we get called authoritarian for our principles, who cares? Cool. Call me authoritarian. I don't care. Grow up. If you call me a bigot, call me a bigot. I don't care. Call me what it, call me a Nazi. Call me a racist. We have to stop being afraid of what people call us, what people think of us, and sacrificing our actual morals, our principles, our beliefs, and what we should stand for on that altar. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Sons of Liberty podcast. My name is Sam Mealy. My name is Hunter Young. And today we have got a special guest, Sir Michael Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Of course. So people are asking, who is Sir Michael? Uh, who is Sir Michael Wilson? Well, this is a good friend of ours that we met in Phoenix, Arizona. We all went to America Fest together. Uh, I think we just have to recap that real quick. So what, what was that event like for you, Michael? Did you, did you enjoy it? Is that, is that kind of up your alley? Oh, yeah. I had a fantastic time. So I'm, I'm very politically involved. Um, I run my own podcast. I do my own kind of stuff in the political world. Um, I competed in debate for a lot of years. And so when I heard that there was an event that was going to have something like 13,000 to 15,000 people um, with similar beliefs to mine, I thought that that was kind of an invaluable opportunity. Um, and it just so happened that the guy who's helping fund my podcast uh, had like 3 million Southwest plane points. So I pretty much got a free flight up to uh, up to Phoenix. So I went out there and I wasn't expecting to really meet anybody. Um, to be quite honest, I just expected to take notes, maybe have stuff to talk about later um, on my show to other people. Um, and then randomly at like midnight or one in the morning, I'm down in the hotel lobby and I see some random dudes just going at it, fighting each other by the elevators. Not actually, but kind of. Um, <laughs> and I decided I had to start a conversation. And then I found out y'all were all one big group and I made some of the best friends of my life. So it was, it was incredible. I mean, it was great. Yeah. The Lord had other plans for you that that day. So that's that's I've found that that's a running theme in my life. The providence of God <laughs> usually does not do what I expect it to do. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, you're 22 years old. You're from Texas, but kind of like take that. What do you do? What what's your what's your uh, life like right now? Yeah. So I'm I'm 22. I'm technically still in college. I do it online just because it fits my schedule better. Um, I'm getting a degree in business entrepreneurship which is kind of a useless degree if you listen to Charlie Kirk, which is probably accurate. But also, I, it's super affordable because I got good scholarships. Um, so I'm doing that. I'll get a degree in that. Um, while I'm a full-time student, I'm also working for a radio station uh, where I'm co-producing and co-hosting a morning drive show from 6 to 8 a.m. live uh, Monday through Friday out of Houston and running all their social media accounts. 
I also run my own podcast and my own social medias on top of all of that. And I'm married and I have a 15-month-old son and another child on the way, which we don't know the gender yet. We'll probably find that out relatively soon. Wait, yeah, wait to let him decide. Wait to let him decide in like 10 years. Yeah, yeah, he can he can pick. That's that's yeah. I'm I'm trying to be woke. I'm trying to be, you know, socially <laughs> understanding. So it's uh what do they call them non-binary babies? Yeah, it's you, ridiculous. Just, you have to have them wear gray, no blue or pink colors. You can't lead them in the wrong direction. You don't want to fit into the heteronormative stereotypes and everything. You know, so on that note, and this is something that never quite made sense to me, is the fact that they they tell us that gender is a construct. They tell us that you can choose your gender and that whether you wear pink or blue, you are whatever you feel like you are. But then they say that with babies, we can't dress them up in pink or blue because those are constructs of the gender. So they're not very logically consistent, which I think is another running theme of leftists. But that's just that's just my take on it. Well, yeah, you've got the alphabet soup, one of them being uh, lesbian, gay, but at the same time, you've got transgender. But that that implies that you can switch from one gender to the other, also non-binary, one gender to the other. That implies that there's only two. But I thought that there's like 57 or however many genders you want. It's all there, right there in the alphabet soup. Like they some say gender is a spectrum. But if you're non-binary, there's only two genders. Like, it really yep. just... Truth is subjective, depending on your worldview. So, and that reminds uh, me heavily of the meme where you go to Amazon to order one of the shirts that says, I'm non-binary, or there are more than two genders. And then when it says, what size do you want to buy it in? You have to check male or female. Those are the only <laughs> two options for shirts. It's like, yeah, okay. So, you know. Yeah. We, we see, you know, you say you're woke, but... You know, you say the, you're woke to, to quote to quote Ricky Gervais from the Golden <laughs> yeah, Age, You say you woke, but the companies you support. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? I cannot believe yeah. you have that bit memorized. I oh, actually dude, had that I've, on my show just a couple just a couple days really? ago. Really? Yeah, I love that monologue. Every once when I'm sad, I just rewatch that monologue <laughs> and I and I and I have hope for the for the future of America again. Did you so? Did you discover the cure for depression? Then I think that's what we've established. <laughs> Yeah, and we just need listen to, to the uh, Ricky Gervais monologue from the uh, Golden yeah. Globes. That's tell, how we do tell it. Tony Ro- tell Tony Robbins we have a cure. We have a cure. <laughs> uh, so, Michael, you're you're 22 years old. You've got two kids. I mean, Hunter and I were both 18 years old. In a way, I mean, at least for me, y- your position of being a talk radio host and then having a young, being a young dad, a young husband, it's kind of where I'd want to be in a few years. I mean, if we're talking to all of our uh, all of our listeners out there who are who are predominantly young. Uh, Christian men, what is your advice to young Christian men out there who want to make it in this America that demonizes real masculinity? I think the biggest, and we can get more in depth into specific strategies and whatnot, but I I think the biggest piece of advice I could possibly give is to rely on the providence of God legitimately and to believe that his plan is better than your plan. And I'll tell you, when I was when I was 18, uh, turning 19, I hadn't even met my now wife at that at that point in my life. I was partying it up, doing what the world said a guy is supposed to do, you know, always in my feels, never never holding anything, you know, any thought captive, never being strong. And I, I thought that's how you know it was supposed to be in the new world. Um, and then I was I was talking with my older sister because I lived with her up in Virginia at the time. And she was like, hey, we, I have this gaming group uh, with, with a bunch of nerds. If you just want to come hang out one night, we'll have – and I was like, no, I don't really want to do that. She's like, there will be food. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's, that's what I have to go to because there's free food. So I showed up um, and I met Riley, who's now my wife. Um, and it was 
like nothing I'd ever experienced before. I kid you not, between the time that I met her in December, we got married three months later in March. Um, within nine months, we were having a son, not like nine months from, from marriage, but within nine months, she was pregnant. And now we have a son. The, the life that I lived that was characterized by a lack of masculinity, quite frankly, that was characterized not necessarily by femininity, uh, but was characterized by, by a lack of respect for God and a lack of respect for his plan. And I'll tell you, the only thing that changed my life was the providence of God. Had I not met my wife, had I not had kids, um, and, and I could tell you the in-depth story of how, uh, for whatever reason, I was brought back to Houston. I was at another Turning Point event where I met my boss who hired me to do work for Americans for Prosperity, where I met the guy who is now funding my podcast show, who introduced me to the guy who hired me at the radio station. And these were all things that I could never, ever have gone and applied for or found on my own. And it, it took a whole different level of faith to just sit here and pray and say, God, whatever plan you've got, I'll follow it. A lot of what we think we can do on our own, a lot of, you know, we can just be masculine. Masculinity is a, in itself, a, a work of God in our lives. Real, true masculinity is not expressed by human character. It's expressed by the character of God as we're made in his image. And so if you're wanting to ask, what does it take to be to be young, to be not, sec not, not secularly successful, but try to follow God's will for your life, a lot of that requires that you bow down before God and accept his providence in your life. If you truly want to be a masculine guy, if you want to have kids young, if you want to have a, a family that loves you and surrounds you, if you want to have good jobs, those things did not come because of something I was good at. Because quite frankly, when my wife met me, I was not the kind of guy she ever would have been interested in. I was not the guy she should have been interested in. And in fact, if my daughter had met me at the age that I met my now wife, I probably would never have let her speak to him. So all of this to show it isn't about what we do, how smart we are, how good we are at something. Those things certainly are beneficial. And I think those things are also given to us by God. But it really is all about the providence of God and following his will for our lives. Are you sure all those things weren't just a coincidence? I mean, really, I mean... I heard an example one time, and this, is, this speaks to creation as well, and it's a really funny example. And somebody asked me, they said, you know, imagine that I put a bomb in Home Depot. Well, don't actually imagine that because the FBI might be listening to our show, and you know, you never <laughs> know what they think is going to happen. Media Matters is going to write us up. Yeah, we're going to bomb Home Depot. But imagine someone random <laughs> put some device in Home Depot that would cause an explosion. And when, it, when Home Depot exploded, somehow, a mile away was a fully built house with all of the nails, all of the insulation and a working HVAC system, perfectly set up electricity and plumbing, a livable house completely furnished. Now you probably think to yourself, that's an absolutely ridiculous scenario that could never happen. And yet people that don't believe in the providence of God, that believe only in coincidence, that don't believe in creation at all, yeah, those people are saying that that whole thing with Home Depot happened, except there was no Home Depot or tools in the first place. And there also was no bomb. And they're also that that was on like a 10 times scale of complexity. So, yeah, the providence of God is certainly why I'm here. It's, it's not coincidence at all. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So I think for sure that's a testament to the fact that I think marriage on is the biggest way that God uh, sanctifies men. I think it, it forces you to have I mean, you're single. You can out your oh, I'm partying. I'm doing whatever I want. I have no responsibilities. But if you have a wife to go back home to at the end of the day, you just cannot do some of the things that you once did. Um, so what is it like getting married 
that young. I mean, everyone who says, oh, you know, wait, wait, live it up and party when, when you're 18 and to 22, college age, for your whole college age, you've been married, basically. So what would you say to those people who say that it's dumb or that you should just wait till you're more mature or wait till whatever? What would you say to those people? I would probably, I would probably communicate to them that it depends on what your life goals are and it depends on, on where you're at with your walk with Christ. If your goal is to, by the secular worldly definition of fun, is just to have fun, then sure, go out, party it up, do whatever you want. If your goal is to have a truly fulfilling life, if you want real joy, which, and, and this is a testament to my life personally, because I actually did spend a lot of high school in the first little bit of college doing a lot of partying, a lot of things I shouldn't have been doing to, a lot of it specifically to rebel against God, I'd, I'd argue. But I think that as a testament of that, what I learned is that those things are, are fun in the moment. They, they lose a lot of their fun the more that you do them. But even in the moment when they're fun, they don't at all compare to the fulfilling joy you get from having a family and providing for them, knowing you can protect them. And that's something that I could literally not have explained prior to having a wife and prior to having kids. Because the moment you get married, all of a sudden, those things that you wanted before, you realize that they're kind of empty, that they kind of lack any real substance. And you also realize that the joy that you find from coming home from work and your wife giving you a kiss when you walk in the door is incomparable to any kind of drug you've ever tried in your life. Um, mm -hmm. And that actually gets even stronger once you have kids. If you think, you know, you get married and you're like, wow, this is it. No, it, it, it keeps going. Like that, that feeling you get, it gets even stronger once you have, you know, you have a son and a daughter that you're looking out for, raising your son to try to live like Christ and raising your daughter to learn how to be a good woman. Those things are things that you literally cannot possibly comprehend until you're there. And if you are the kind of person that enjoys parties, you enjoy these other things, I would, I would communicate to you that quite honestly, you've never experienced life. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. I think that, uh, um, one of the things I would say for me is like growing up in the, in the same way, growing up in, in public school, like the public school, I had a, a great family and a great dad, but so, I mean, I'm going to get into the whole home. I'm sure you're homeschooling your kids and, and everything. Mm -hmm. So how important do you think that is to actually raise your kids and not have somebody else raise your kids? Because I had outstanding parents, like they, they loved me and they, they showed me a lot of love, but I also went to public school and there's things that I was exposed to at eight years old that should never be something an eight year old is ever exposed to. So how would you um, navigate like homeschooling and, and making sure your kids are also socially, you know, capable, capable yeah. but also, yeah. Because everyone has a stereotype of the homeschooled kid who's, uh, you know, like Sam over here yeah, or something. Yeah, little... yeah, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, no, I like I like to think that I don't necessarily fit in that stereotype. In fact, my uh, the the host of the the show that I have to work the soundboard for and also speak on, um, she calls homeschooled people pod people, and it was really funny because one day we're live on air and I go, you know, I was homeschooled, right? She goes. You were not homeschooled. You're not a pod person. You're like super social and smart. And I was like, yeah, interesting how when you homeschool correctly, those things can happen. Um, I think that there's, there's the invaluability, and we could talk about the theological and the secular side of it. I think that no matter which side you approach homeschooling from, it's a good idea. Um, I mean, and they've even done studies on – because people try to argue all the time, right? Like I can't afford homeschooling. We both have to work. 
And it's like the studies that even show people that got like $100 a year curriculum that's bottom of the barrel were still performing higher than most public schooled students. So even from a secular wow. perspective of test taking and intelligence levels, being raised at home does produce smarter kids. Um, and one of the reasons for that is just that curriculum in general in the public school system, and you can probably realize this, it, everyone has the same math book. You didn't get a different math book from the other kids, even if you learn entirely different from those kids. So when your parents are homeschooling you, they can learn what your strengths are and play into those. From a theological perspective, we're called to be to raise our kids in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Um, when our kids are sent to public school from the time that you send them in first grade, in kindergarten to first grade, until they get out in 12th grade, do you know how many hours they spend in the public school system away from their parents? A lot. 15,500 hours. <laughs> so how can you say that you're raising your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord if the government is the one that has 15,500 hours with them? If they're spending eight hours, hmm. day, eight hours a day at, at their school away from you and then eight hours sleeping, well, that only leaves you with a total of eight hours. The government has just as much time with your kids as you do, and that's assuming you spend every last waking second with them after they're home. No parent is doing that. And so the odds are yeah. that when you when you send them to a public school, you're not the one raising them anymore. It's not just that you're sending them there for a good education. You're no longer the one that is raising them. And so you can no longer – you don't even have the capability really to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord because you're not raising them in the first place. And so I try to tell people uh, – because there's a lot of people that say that's kind of a heart issue, you know, homeschooling versus public schooling. And I, I, try, to, I try to show them – yeah, the, the 21st century, you know, 2023 version of public schooling is really dangerous, right? Because they have all of this new curriculum. You have critical race theory. You've got the LGBTQ plus propaganda. You've got all this other stuff. But even prior to that stuff being in schools, you know, where did the feminist revolution come from? Where did it come from? You think it just came from out of nowhere to the adults? No, it was all shown, started in colleges, started in high school, started in middle schools, where they had your kids for 15,500 hours. And so if we are to be good stewards of the children that God's given us, and if we're to raise the next generation, I think that homeschooling is a prerequisite and a requirement to doing those things. Yeah, I mean, the parents have to be involved. I mean, all these, <clears throat> I've heard so many stories of even pastors who have, who have uh, raised their kids in the church. They, they send them to all the camps. Uh, all the Christian camps, they, they go to church every Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night, send them to Awana, they send them to VBS, but they're public schooled. Or even if they're homeschooled, then you send them off to college and you're handing the education over to secularists. Mm -hmm. And as a pastor, I mean, at, at, I'm not just targeting pastors, it's most Christian families uh, that more people are becoming aware of, of this issue than many people in the past, but it's most Christian families that just give away their kids' future to secularists, whether it is in the public school or in college. I mean, why are are they are they tricked? Do they think it's a better education that that one than what they could give them? Yeah, and I think that one of the big statements that plays into this um, is a statement that you'll probably have heard. People say, don't shelter your kids, you know, don't, don't ever do that. You want them to, you know, understand the world. And it's like, what's the purpose of a parent? The literal purpose of a parent is to shelter their kids. Like, yes, you can go overboard with that, protect certainly. Them. Yeah. But your job is to protect them from bad things. 
And so when somebody says, well, you shouldn't shelter your kids, they're going to see that stuff anyways. It's like, yeah, but the job of me as a parent is to make sure that they are protected. So especially as men, I'll argue that it's our fault primarily. When we're called to protect our kids, if you think that that's only if a robber comes up with a gun, you're mistaken. That's, in fact, relatively small amount of time. Like, yes, we still need to be fit and able to handle ourselves should the situation arise. But I'd argue that the protection of our families is much more spiritual than it is physical. Because um, have you seen the studies done on on fathers that convert versus mothers and children and how that leads the home? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're incredible. And it's it's certainly a testament to the way that God ordered the family with the fathers as the head of the home under Christ. And and when we don't do that, when we are not instilling our, our wives and our children with that, we're failing as fathers. And so, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to to say they were tricked. Because God provides us with the wisdom, the same as he did with Solomon, if we're willing to accept that wisdom. Yes, we have to pray for it. Yes, we have to be willing to listen and to learn. But it's difficult because we've been pestered for years that sheltering is bad, that homeschooling produces unintelligent, antisocial kids. And it's like, that's not actually true to any degree. And I think that I myself can speak to that because I'm a testament of that. I I don't think that, you know, I... I did very bad on my tests that I'm doing, that I'm doing bad in college. Um, I wouldn't consider myself unintelligent or antisocial. I mean, I, I made best friends in Phoenix on a random business trip in a matter of like three hours. So I'd like to say that I'm, I'm pretty socially apt. In fact, I'd say that I'm probably more socially apt than I would have been had I been put in a public school environment. Well, I mean, all these public schoolers are like on Ritalin and on all of the like, it's the most heavily medicated generation in American history. Mm-hmm. And they're calling the homeschoolers the uneducated ones. They're calling the homeschoolers the, the socially inapt ones. It doesn't make any sense. My mom had a daycare at our at our house for like 18 years. And um, she was always, always encouraged the kids to go outside and play outside, you know, like a normal kid would. And then all of a sudden iPads and all these things started, started coming about. And... Um, so eventually, like, you would have a kid who's, you know, eight-year-old, nine-year-old boys tend to be hyper, and they like to roughhouse, and they like to do things that their kids, you know, they act up, they they hit each other on the head, or, like, hit each other in the head with a baseball bat sometimes. I, st- I still like maybe. doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, And then you would have, like, the next day, they would come in, and you're like, and the parent would be like, oh, yeah, you're going to really like Johnny today, you know, we got him on his, his medication. And the kid would just be sitting on his iPad at the table all day. My mom would be like, hey, you know, don't you want to go outside? And they'd be like, oh, no. Just completely lethargic. And, and it's like lazy. you throw these these 20 kids to one teacher in a public school. And it's like, honestly, I don't really blame the teachers for wanting them to be on medications. <laughs> like, I mean, you can't handle 20 kids in a classroom, half of them being boys. Like, it's just not they're not meant to be stuck up in a classroom all day. And I think it's like there's so many aspects of it that's just screwed up. And um, we're doing a kid such a disservice by just throwing them on medication and, and not letting them learn to not hit their friend with a baseball bat unless they deserve it. But. Yeah. And I mean, that also speaks into a couple of other great things about homeschooling. For starters, um, I don't know, um, but I can speak to this. So the curriculum we used worked to such a degree that I'd get up. I got up pretty early and I'd get up 5, 6 a.m. Um, we'd eat breakfast together as a family at the table, and I would work from about seven to nine, seven to nine thirty, up until I was in high school, and all my school would be done for the day. 
And I'd spend the rest of the day playing outside, jumping on the trampoline, you know, riding a four wheeler, doing really fun outdoor stuff that actually, you know, got my blood flowing. So that's one of the perks is that school should never actually take eight hours. School took me maybe two, mm. three hours, and I was still learning more than the average public schooler. But the other thing, and, and this is the cooler thing, and if you're, you're considering homeschooling, I'd really encourage you to think about this. You are the curriculum, right? Like you are allowed to completely decide in most states. There are some states where this is not the case, but most states, you know, there's a certain level of things you have to do. But you pretty much get to decide what that looks like from a class perspective. So like I'll give you an example of this. When I was in biology, one of the things we got to do is go to the beach. We got to go fishing. We got to take those fish and dissect them at the beach and be labeling and doing drawings. You know how cool it is to be a 12-year-old boy fishing and cutting up fish as, as a school project? Yeah, yeah. yeah you don't yeah. get to do that in public school. It's just sad to see what, what we've done to the kids. And it's got to be us. It has to be the church that's going to that's gonna – take over the education of the next generation and have our kids say like our kids need to be the ones evangelizing for homeschool and be like hey look at the life that I live to their friends that they're playing sports with and they're saying and like it'll be a living testimony of oh we can actually literally see the live difference of here's the kid who grew up in public school versus here's the kid who was homeschooled and trained up in the bible trained up in the way that he should go and look at the difference and I think we have to do that and do it well and uh, be a testimony to the world of, of what true parenting looks like. Yeah and, yeah, and speaking to that, I'll point out that a lot of the time when I'm talking, especially as I can give you another example of this, with, with my new host of the radio show I'm doing, it, I had her guess my age after our first show together. She thought I was like 30, 32. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm 22 years old, just turned 22 years old a couple months ago. She's like, there's no way you're super smart and mature for your age. And I took it as a compliment, but I tried to communicate to her and I was like, you know why that is? It's because the right. fear of the Lord is the beginning of real wisdom and all of the other intelligence that I have flows out of my wisdom that comes from God. And the only reason I have that wisdom is because I was raised in that wisdom. You have to remember, we've had public schools pretty much for the entirety of recorded human history, but those public schools were used, especially in, in, in the last 2000 years, as a form of, of teaching kids to read the Bible. Like in, in, in the beginning of America, when you had the British colonies, a lot of these kids, they when, when you know they were going to schoolhouses, they were only going for a couple of hours before they went to do the rest of their things at home. They were learning only how to read the Bible. That was the entire point of the school system. And so when they try to tell you the founding fathers would have supported public school system, yeah, a public school system, that's entire point was just to read and write. That was the entire point. So it only took a couple hours. There was nothing else interjected in. And then they went home and spent the other 12 waking hours with their family, 12 to 14 waking hours with their family um, to be raised the right way. And the, the, the education they were getting, even that was focused on the fear and the admonition mm. of the Lord. So yeah, talk, talk, to us, uh, talk to us about the the roles of uh, boys and girls and how you as a father should be raising them. Oh, this is what this you, is a... you as a father should be raising them uh, to do. So you, you brought up, you mentioned that you have a, a, a 15 month, a 15 month old, right? Mm -hmm. And you got another on the way. Mm -hmm. So you have got a boy is, is, so you don't know the gender. Okay. I don't so, know the gender. Um, I kind of secretly okay. hope it's a girl, but I'm not going to be discontent either way. That would be cool because then it would validate the arguments you're about to make uh -huh. about raising boys and girls. So it mm -hmm. would work out in that sense. Just talk, talk to us as uh, our audience as young men. How do we raise young men and how do we raise uh, young girls? Because I think there is a misconception that, oh, you raise all kids the same. But no, like you need to raise boys differently than you raise girls. Yeah. So I, I would say the first and I'll, I'll point out one thing that we should do for all kids that needs to be really clear from the get go. And this is something that. 
um, I, I think that a lot of parents have failed at, I know mine did, most did, is that most you know kids get smartphones when they're between the ages of 12 and 14 or even younger. And it's a, it's a terrible, oh, younger, yeah. terrible thing that you could do to your kids. You are quite literally throwing the worst temptation the world has ever seen right in their face when they're of the age that you're still supposed to be protecting them from temptation. So the thing, the one thing that we've said in my house is that they're not going to get a phone until I've personally decided that given whatever they're doing, if they're having to go, you know, to trade school young or whatever, that they need a phone to be able to communicate with me or someone else. And even then I'm not going to give them a smartphone. I don't want them to have those kinds of internet accesses until they're old enough to decide that for themselves. And quite frankly, if I raise them the way I expect to, I don't think they'll want that temptation by the time they're 18 anyways. Um, I know that if I wasn't using my phone as a business mechanism for social media, I wouldn't have a smartphone either because even at 22, I just know that it's unwise to put myself in those situations. If you've scrolled Instagram for more than five seconds, you know that it's just not a good place to be. Um, so that's the first thing. Specifically in, for a young man. Specifically, specifically for, for a young, a young man. man. And actually, I'd argue, uh, you know, it's we don't notice this because as young men, we don't tend to think for the other side. We have to a little more as fathers. Young men see stuff that, that hits certain sins in their mind and in their hearts that are difficult to deal with on social media. But there's other sins that, that girls struggle with, specifically self-validation, um, believing that they need to be girl bosses, believing that they need to be as good as these other women are in ways that, they, that God never created them to be. And so even though their sin is not the same as our sin, social media still heavily plays into their sin because they start comparing themselves with other women and, and the success of other women. And that just leads to more and more problems in society. But in terms of raising kids differently, there's quite a few things I'm gonna do. For starters, the boys are gonna spend a lot more time doing difficult tasks outside. Um, I think that one of the things that our society failed majorly at, and I think this is a fault of the feminist revolution, is that boys were told that they're not supposed to be aggressive or ever, ever to be violent. And Jordan Peterson says a really incredible thing about that. He points out that it, if you cannot fight, if you are not capable of violence, you're not actually peaceful, you're just weak. And those are two vastly different things. And so the first thing that I'm gonna do is make sure that my sons are raised to be tough and to be resilient because men need to be. And so, I mean, even now you can see that and people are gonna be like, oh, you're abusive. But even at 15 months old, you know, he'll be walking across the couch when, you know, walking across a couch is a really bad idea for a little baby. And my wife tries to tell me, she's like, no, he's gonna fall. And I'm like, he might. And if he falls, he's gonna get back up and I'm gonna tell him he's okay and he can do it again. I probably wouldn't do that with my daughter because my daughter is more a more delicate creature She's designed to be protected, whereas men are designed to be the protectors. And so if we're going to be the protectors, we have to be willing to take a fall and get back up. And so even from a very young age, he's being raised in the mindset that he is allowed to fall, but he needs to be capable of getting back up. That's more of an ideological raising, raising technique than it is actual differences. Um, the other stuff is that boys really aren't as good at dealing with with focusing on things for long periods of time. Uh, girls are rather good at that, I've noticed, especially especially living at home with a wife. Girls are very good at focusing on very menial tasks. I can't. I really can't do it. In fact, I love my job so much because what I'm doing is constantly rambling and talking about different things. Um, right. Dudes are very good at, at a, a diverse range of things, and we're very good at getting things done quickly. Girls are very good at being patient, they're very good at, at being meek. And so I think we need to return to raising girls not to be girl bosses, not, not to be you know another robot in the workforce, 
we specifically need to focus on raising girls and young women to be good wives and good mothers. And so we have to raise them not to have the same attitudes as guys, not to be as resilient and as tough, not to be able to go out and, and be good leaders. That should not be our intent in raising daughters. Our intent in raising daughters should absolutely be focused on raising good wives, good mothers, good keepers of the home. And I mean, Proverbs 31 is great for this. If you want to, if you want to kickstart a course into what you want your daughter to be, you can develop all of the, the techniques you're going to use to raise them to that. But Proverbs 31 gives a picture of, of the most beautiful woman in the world. And you'll notice none of it has to do really with working or with being a leader or being tough. Whereas the opposite is true for boys. God designed men to be leaders. Even if that's only on such a small scale as your home, we have to be capable of leadership. I think he's called some men to be leaders among leaders in the sense that some of us are called to step up and do more in the culture and to fight battles. Like we're doing a podcast. Not everybody's called to do stuff like this. They're not called to stand out. This is a scary thought for a lot of young men because they're scared of being canceled and they're, they're scared of these things. Not all young men are, are called to be leaders among leaders, but we have to foster leadership generally because when when a man is incapable of leading the society falls apart and that's what i try to explain to you about the feminist revolution i'm not mad at women for feminism obviously they have responsibilities to bear for the mistakes that they make but i on large i i blame men for the feminist re revolution because the only way that you get a lack of leadership from males and women rising up is a lack of leadership from males and so we have to start raising our sons with the intent purpose to raise them to be leaders, to raise them to be resilient, to let them fall down, to not throw them in front of a book or in front of menial tasks all day, but to, to allow them to let out their inner strength, their physical strength. Um, and the opposite, again, is true with girls. We have to be willing to say, you know, God has designed you to be good at keeping the home, being good at dealing with little kids, being good at dealing with with the the menial tasks that that super matter for women which is you know cleaning cooking those sorts of things so our focus on raising our kids is going to be to make sure that our, our boys grow up to be strong christian leaders and our goal in raising our girls is to is to grow them into being good meek patient christian wives and submissive mothers and wives and i think that that is a really important distinction that if you don't get it right if you raise them the same you're not actually acknowledging God's will for their lives. Mm. I, I think there's a lot of people who would hear you say that and just be like, cancel Sir Michael Wilson, cancel Sir Michael Wilson. Can you talk about what does it actually mean? Just to clarify for all those people who I, might either be offended or might be a little confused because they've never heard someone say, we, maybe we should raise boys and girls differently um, and explain it in the way you did. Can you clarify what does it mean to be a woman that is truly empowered, not to the world standards, but to be biblically empowered as a feminine uh, and biblical uh, woman. Can you explain that? So I think that our basis... Just, same just with, do some mansplaining. We oh need yeah, to happily. Mansplaining. I'll explain to women what they should be. This is women love me. Yeah. So I will say that, that, and this is true of literally every topic we will ever discuss, is that we have to start with the foundation of scripture because that's God's spoken word. If we don't start there, we have no basis at all. And I've, that's true for literally anything, whether that's our government, whether that's that's raising our kids, whether that's how we live our lives, how hard we work, what we do. Um, all of that starts at the foundation of what God's called us to. So if we don't start with scripture, then it's, then it's useless. 
With that being said, if we do look at scripture, God clearly has different designs. And this, again, is shown in the physical world. And this is why we're called that we, we have no excuse in believing. Because even if you don't have the Bible, these things are super clear to any casual observer who's willing to think. Women do not have the same muscle mass as men. It's, they just don't. They don't have the same mental resilience. Their, every study ever performed on women in the workforce showed that their stress levels are nearly twice as high, if not higher than men. It is always true that when you put women in stress situations, in leadership positions, in positions where they're required to be physically capable, they fail. And that's not a bad thing. That's not insulting. It's not to be rude to them. In fact, it's actually a compliment because God designed them for something much more beautiful for them. God designed men with the inherent capability to lead, to be strong, and to be mentally tough and resilient against things like stress and difficulties. On the other hand, a truly empowered woman is one who follows God's will. That's what empowerment means for whether, whether it's a male or a female, a man or a woman. Empowerment is just us truly following God's will and finding, finding joy and satisfaction in the Lord. And so a woman who is empowered is a woman who follows God's will. And God's will for women is immediately clear in scripture. It's to be, it's to be meek. It's to be patient. It's to be mild. It's to be submissive to husbands. It's to be a good mother, a patient mother. It's to keep the home and to be willing to do whatever it takes to do so. And those are things that men are not good at. I'm, I'm, and it, it, this is, again, it's not to be misogynistic because I, as someone who has had a sick wife and had to stay home and do her tasks, it's not fun. It, I'm very bad at it. I'm just not talented in that arena. God made me for other things. You could take me all day and ask me to be on shows like this, ask me to come out and hang out with the guys. If we want to have a wrestling tournament, I'd be down. I cannot stand being in the home and making dinner. It's just not where my talent's at. Folding laundry ain't it, boys. I'm just not, I'm not gifted there. But I think that that's, that's for good reason. And so when God calls men and women to their specific roles, the physical world aligns with what God created because God created the physical world. So when God says, women, do these things, what we'd expect to see and what we do see are women actually being physically better and physically capable of those things as opposed to the other things. So a truly empowered woman is a woman who only notes what is true. A woman who notes that what God commanded is what God created. That God commanded things, not because he was just some overly powerful God who wanted a good storyline, but because what he created aligned with what he commanded and his commandments are what are mm. best for us. And so a truly empowered, truly joyful woman is a woman who is doing the task God called her to. And I can speak to the truth of that because my wife is one of the most joyful, happiest women I've ever met in my life. And I met a lot of women. And I'll tell you that the women I know that are in the workforce, the women that are partying it up, that are sleeping around, the women that are having what's supposed to be the fun of their lives and doing the girl boss things that they're called to do by the world, those women are always, and I don't mean 90% of the time, I don't mean 95% or 99, I mean 100% of the time less happy than the women who follow God. Amen, and even so many statistics prove that, I mean, you said it anecdotally, but the statistics prove that women are happier when they're in the home and raising children. I think that's one thing that we need to tell women, mansplain to women, that um, you don't, it's not a burden. And this is another thing that we have to, uh, tell women to choose the right men, to not choose men who are weak, to not choose men who are soft, to not choose men that are that are soy boys. Uh, you even see like these these girls on TikTok saying, like, liberal men are so unattractive. Like I'm a liberal and I want to be liberal, but I look at liberal men and they're so soft and weak. And it's like we need to tell them that 
it's a blessing when when a man that is a true leader and a true man, it's a blessing to serve him. It's a blessing to raise his children and your children. It's it's something that you get to do together, and it's so beautiful because both roles God created them to work harmoniously together. If you're a girl boss woman and you pick a, a soy boy guy, you're just going to be clashing the whole entire time, or you get like a stay at home dad kind of thing, which is absolutely. And the roles become reversed. Yeah. In the marriage, the and wife becomes the head, and it fails yeah. ultimately. Yeah. And if somehow it survives, it's severely unhealthy and it's going to damage your children. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you look at, we have this, the super high divorce rate, but when you, you boil things down, like if you agree on religion, if you agree on the way you should raise your children, if you agree on finances, finances, if you agree on gender roles, the divorce rate is practically zero. Yeah. Like it doesn't happen. And I think that's such a testament to the fact that, you know, the Bible is true. I'll yeah. say two things. I'll give one, I'll give a fun, a fun little uh, real life example, a real life study. And then I'll give you a, a, a example into how I run my home that I think is going to be incredibly controversial, even among, <laughs> even among people our age with our, with our values. So the first is a little story. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but they did a little study on men that, that went out and actually like physically worked hard. They took liberal soy boy men and made them like chop wood and do super masculine things for like a few weeks. And those men were more likely to vote Republican um, after those weeks were up. <laughs> so it's actually true that, that liberal men are just less manly and that's why they vote for libs. So I guess the lesson there is if you're ever concerned that you might be a liberal, just go work out, be manlier. Um, it's, it's, it's wholeheartedly true. A man that is, and this again, plays into God's order, right? When we are being the men God called us to be, when we are fit and we are protective and when we are strong, we're going to agree with the other traditional values that God has put on our hearts as men. And so you'll find that men who are strong are also just so happening to be voting for the side that opposes mutilating kids, that opposes these agendas that are being forced onto people. Those are, those are not coincidences. Again, that is the providence of God and the way that he created the order of the world. Now, I will tell you mm-hmm. um, one thing that I do in my home, and this, this is – I have not told anyone on my show this because I just, I just know people are going to be up in arms about this. My wife does not have <laughs> access to our bank accounts. Now, I know. I've been, I've been told – they're like, you could be abusing her. She can't go get – and it's like I could be, certainly. <laughs> but I think that part of a, an ordered marriage is, is, is a high level of trust in your husband to be a leader. And so I'll tell you the, the difference it made, and this only again works if you are a strong leader and your wife is submissive and trusts you. But if that's the case, I will point out that her stress levels have been so vastly lower because she's not worried about how much money we have in our bank account or how much money is being spent. And so we'll go out to dinner and I'll take her out to dinner. She's like, do we have enough for this? And I go, yeah. She doesn't know that I'm literally going to have to like pull our savings out a little bit to take her to dinner. She's just going to enjoy a nice dinner. And so that's one little, that's just one tiny little example of how I actually like, this isn't an act. This isn't me grifting off of the trad con, you know, new trendy stuff. This is really how I order my home because I think that it's what God. This isn't you just, this isn't just your best attempt at Andrew Tate. Like, no, this isn't, this is real. (laughs) This is real. I believe that God has a certain order. Also, I cannot stand Andrew Tate. Don't get me wrong. He has good things that he says. No, he has good things that he says, right? There are beneficial things that Andrew Tate says. I think that he diagnoses the problems well, but I think his solutions are as evil, if not more evil than the problems themselves. God Hmm. has solutions to every single problem we will ever face. And that's not an exaggeration. Every single problem we face, God has an answer to it. 
if we're willing to listen and we're willing to stay in his word and we're willing to be in prayer. Andrew Tate's solutions is more girls and more money. That does not fix anything at all, ever, not in the history of the world. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous to me that a man who speaks out in this kind of way, and I, I try to be a little bit gentler, only because to a, a certain level, it's been beneficial for society because at least it's woken a lot of people up to the plight that men face, and it's woken them up that they need to be masculine. But I think that it would be good if you listen to the first three minutes of an Andrew Tate speech where he talks about the issues and then you turn it off and come listen to my show. I think – or your show. I think that would be the better bet. <laughs> yeah. I think that would be the solution. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, for but sure. yeah. I mean it's it's crazy. Like I watched a uh, – I mean it just – real quick, another tag on that Andrew Tate thing before we move on here. But it was it was so weird. I, Tucker Carlson did an interview with Andrew Tate. And this isn't to like diss Tucker Carlson in any way. I'm just using this as an example. Um, and they went – obviously Andrew Tate and Tristan Tate are, on, are still in house arrest mm-hmm. in their complex in Romania. So Tucker went out there and he was like – they were showing the car – they were showing like a nice car to Tucker that they have. And I just see in the back they've just got – Andrew Tate and Tristan Tate have an entourage of middle-aged, wealthy men who are just always there. People like Justin Waller and all of these, uh, those sorts of people. They were just standing there. And I'm thinking, okay, what is less manly than sleeping around, living with a much richer man than you just to try to get, just to try to get a woman or two and... Uh, just enjoy enjoy some cocktails and some cigars with Andrew Tate because that makes you so much cooler. It's like you're just trying to get into his inner circle. How is that manly at all? It's just a bunch of middle-aged rich dudes just chilling in Romania pretending like being boys who can shave essentially and like no, that's it's, so it's super, lame it's super like go get too. married have more kids than you can afford as tucker carlson says like mm-hmm. i don't understand that it's super it's gay ridiculous. is what it is having <laughs> having masculine friends is a good thing but if you're around but to that level is crazy no it's yeah. crazy one living with them is crazy but but more than that <laughs> is having this entourage of of people and and sticking around with someone that you know is probably not a good person and and that you don't actually necessarily agree with on a lot of things. Like Justin Waller was was practically nobody and he knows that he used the Tates to gain to gain fame. That's exactly what he's done. Um and to latch on. And so the concept of latching on to another man for anything is incredibly homo. And so I'm just I'm just gonna point out <laughs> that you totally should not do that. Oh my gosh. Are are you are you being passive aggressive with us here? I mean, I don't know. There's nothing going on. But. <laughs> no, see, I'm at home with a wife and kids, and there's two dudes in your studio. So who's really yes, the gay that's... ones? There's actually three. There's one in the corner over here too. That's true. He's yeah. He's uh, so there's three chilling on the beanbag. Oh no. There's oh. three of us. This is Ooh, it. Gosh. Oh, um, gosh. But we're not done with Andrew Tate yet. There's another thing, like another consequence of his ideology and beliefs. So you have these these boys who like they're like we go gem boys. Like they literally their whole thing is like they post. Uh, shirtless pictures of themselves on social media of like their their six pack and their like their nice man boobs that they developed over many months of working out and it's like they literally their whole lives are just in the gym and that's it like they don't go out they don't do anything like they're literally just they go work and then they go gym and that's like their whole personality and it's like that's such a shallow view of what a strong man is like it's like that's part of it we should be physically fit and our wives that's good for our wives too but like it's such a shallow and such a uh i mean that's another evidence that it's also from the devil because the devil just twists what what god's mm-hmm. standard is and so yeah he's like he's his diagnoses are good like you said 
but it's just another counterfeit of what true masculinity is because it, it's not just oh yeah i'm big and strong and that makes me a man it's like there's so much more you haven't even reached the first rung of being a man if you think that yeah. that's what a man is yeah and this is less on the andrew tate side of things and even less on on how to raise your kids or anything like that but i would like to point out if all you do in order to be a protector is go to the gym and lift heavy weights that's a really bad idea as 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 i would like to i would like to say if you've ever watched a really big jack dude who has had no fighting experience fight tiny little dudes he's gonna lose every <laughs> single time so i would encourage you if you're going to the gym to protect your wife your future wives or your current wives Add actual fighting in there as well. I think that's a really important mm -hmm. thing. And that's also why I want to have multiple boys. I want them to wrestle each other because that'll make them both stronger. <laughs> I really want that to be a thing out yeah. in my backyard. You won't have to you won't have to pay for Muay Thai or jiu-jitsu. Just, just like just throw them the out backyard. there. <laughs> just throw them back there and say, go at it. Yeah, you could also get if you want to add extra fun, like you could you could make it a team activity where there it's a team sport and you put both boys in the back with a ram. That would also be, you know, a lot more fun. <laughs> No, and this is actually why – this is actually why if you look back and you're like, oh, yeah, our grandfathers and our fathers were so much more masculine than kids today. It's like, yeah, my dad or my grandpa had to cross a, a, a you know, a two-acre field that had a bull in it to get to school and he's getting chased. Of course he's going to be tougher than you, kid. Like, yeah. There's, there's, yeah. It, it's true. Like They didn't get – yeah. They didn't get their Starbucks latte on the way to school. No, like, they, they didn't. They didn't get uh, all the, their Dunkin' Donuts, Boston cream donut, which are delicious, but they didn't have that <laughs> on the way to school. They had to actually, you know, They didn't drink the water that turned have... the frogs gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't have fluoride in their water. No, they so. didn't. I actually, I, have, I actually have a filter yeah. in my house that filters out fluoride, just FYI. Yeah, and I think even just to go back to the the idea of like uh, how the household should work if you're if you're doing it biblically – an example in history is Jonathan Edwards and his wife, Sarah Edwards. You look at Jonathan Edwards, he was obviously planted by God for a specific time. He, he, was, he was leading a nation in a, in a revival that, a na to a nation that would not have arose without, without the revival that he led. And she, um, there's, there's a story, and he was so dedicated. He needed to be in the scripture. He needed to be reading 15, 16 hours a day sometimes because— that was what God had called him to do. He had to be teaching. He had to know the theological. He had to know God so deeply to be able to reach his culture that was that was so dark and that was in desperate need of of Jesus and a revival. And they had, I think, eleven kids, ten or eleven kids, which as many did back then. And if his wife wasn't the the wife that she was, and and she said, his ministry is this, but my ministry is my children and 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 his children and he wouldn't be able to do it if it wasn't for me. And she's the one, like, it's almost a more noble goal because Jonathan Edwards gets to go up there and preach in front of thousands of people and get all, all some of the glory naturally. But here's his, his wife that's raising their children and making sure the household is, is sound. And that's almost a more noble goal because you're not getting any, any glory for it. So, and actually, I mean, women have the greatest role in the history of the world. They literally get to grow humans inside of inside of them like that's insane yeah that blows my mind and then they're like oh i want your job i'm like no you have the coolest <laughs> job in the world yeah and like, there was... why, i don't understand why you would want anything different when you were wired to do the most incredible most fulfilling job any human could possibly do yeah the story just to go i just want to finish the jonathan edwards point is um there's a story that he was preparing for something preparing for a sermon for like two weeks or, or a month even and it was time like it was time to get the crops in the crops in at home and he came out of his uh his bedroom after 
like weeks basically of studying and came out and he's like uh sarah the um the crops need to to be brought in and she was like oh they were brought in two weeks ago because she just she knew that he had to be so involved in the study and she accepted that and she didn't she could have got on him and been like where were you these last two weeks you were in there studying while i'm out here having to do to do all this work and it's like no she accepted that it was they were harmonious they were one flesh that was their their ministry was working for each other and and helping each other and making sure that these things got done and and it's so amazing what a truly godly marriage looks like because the household can function when one person is seemingly you know focused on an external ministry but that is the ministry is the household is where it all flows from and if if Jonathan Edwards didn't have a wife that was that willing to submit to God he wouldn't have been able to do any of those things because he'd be locked up in the house you know husking corn or whatever instead mm. he had a great wife yeah no that's it's it's absolutely true and and c.s lewis i think puts it really well he talks about this and i'm going to paraphrase him because i'm no c.s lewis nor do i have his quote pulled up but c.s lewis talks about how how what women do is the jobs for which all other jobs exist right a man drives the train so that he can get home and have a nice warm dinner with his family you know a man does this that or the other thing whatever his job is with the full expectation that he comes home to a nice meal, to sit down, and to enjoy his evening. Who makes that possible? Well, his wife does. Right. And so I think that we cannot possibly underestimate the the not only the talent, but the implications that a wife has on the home. I could not be doing what I'm doing if I was not married. I, I really can tell you that the, the amount of time that I dedicate to things, it would be nearly impossible. I would not have time to eat. I would not have, I mean, it, it's crazy the amount of of taking things off my plate that my wife does. And so that's yet another reason to get married young. I mean, it's true. They are your help meet and men are designed to have help. This is why Adam was super lonely, lonely, depresso, espresso in the garden because he was like, oh, there's something missing here. I don't like doing this by myself. There's things that I don't really know how to do and I'm not good at doing and I don't have the time to do. God's like, well, here you go. Give me a rib. So now we have our beautiful wives. Uh, well, y'all don't, but y'all will soon, I hope. Um, and, and you'll get there. And it's, it's truly a testament to, <laughs> to the way that God designed all of it. Um, and, and it's just, it's a beautiful sentiment to understand that God has designed us for specific things and specific roles. And when the home is ordered, there is quite literally nothing like it. I will on this note, make a slight point because a lot of, a lot of evangelicals in the 21st century have gotten caught up in this. You probably heard it servant leadership thing. Um, and they say men are supposed to be servant leaders and, and they, they use that. And I, I like to agree with them to an extent. They, they say that men are supposed to be servant leaders, which means you lead by serving. And I take it the other way. I say, no, you're supposed to be a servant leader and you serve by leading. And so, mm. and I think that's a really important distinction that the way, and this is, I, I think this is true in, in terms of the glory of God too. When God says glorify me, glorify me is not a single specific task. It's glorify me in all that you do. It's, it's whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And in the same way as, as husbands and as fathers in the home, the best way that we can serve is to be good spiritual leaders in the home. That is the method of service that God has called us to as men. 
And I think that's something that's often misunderstood in servant leadership is that it's kind of been twisted to mean that we are the lowest rung that we kind of get in the bottom and, you know, we are the servers. And it's like, no, the way that we serve in the same way that we glorify God is in the ways that God specifically called us to, which is in being leaders and protectors and providers. Um, just a yeah, short random leading, Yeah, because being a leader isn't as glamorous as it might seem if you're not a leader. Like it's super difficult it takes you work harder than anybody else inherently you everybody is on your back you you're responsible for everyone under you if they do something wrong like Jocko Willink always says it if if someone under my uh someone under my command does something wrong it might not be my fault but it's 1000% my responsibility and that is a weight that most people just can't bear or they most don't want to bear yeah but it looks and that that in that in itself is a is a heck of a lot of uh service is like is exactly is akin to what jesus did in washing the disciples feet i mean that uh, that's the verse when the evangel modern evangelicals say be a servant leader so jesus washed the feet he did all the things that weren't glamorous he wasn't up just telling people what to do he wasn't being a a tyrannical leader he was there he, he gave a command and then he followed through and he wasn't a hypocrite um and he did the dirty work but that's exactly what being a leader is. It's doing what you tell other people to do and and being willing to do the dirty work. Yeah, and until you have that level of responsibility, you really don't understand how much responsibility it really is. Watching the numbers in the bank account. When you're a single guy, and I can speak to this, nothing really concerns you, to be quite honest. Like You're like, oh, I only have this much money. You're like, ah, who cares? I'll figure it out. <laughs> Once you have a family that you're actively providing for, the level of stress that you face each and every day for like 90% of Americans, I'm not talking about the rich Americans that will never ever worry about anything in their lives, but I'm talking about for most of us, especially the young men among us, the amount of responsibility you're going to bear at having a family is insane. The stress levels are very high. It is a very demanding job, and I'm not lying about that. But there's a beauty in it because God designed us to handle that. He designed us to not only handle it, but to thrive with it, to let it drive us, to let it motivate us to be the best glorification of God that we possibly can be in our actions. And, and having a wife and kids absolutely does do that. It puts us in such a leadership position that our responsibility is insanely high. And my dad, I learned, I got to learn this luckily at a young age. We were in a Walmart one time, me and my dad, my dad looked at me and he goes, son, don't act up. Cause I was starting to kind of, you know, I was young. I was like six years old. I was not behaving. I wanted probably some soda that he wasn't going to get me. And, and I was complaining about it, probably whining to him. And he says, you need to stop right now. This looks bad on me. And I was like, what do you mean? This looks bad on you. I was like, I'm the one acting bad. And he's like, you don't understand. When you act bad, mm. no one's looking at you in this store. Not a single soul in this store is looking at you whining. They're looking at me like, what is that father doing with his son? And that's true of our wives and of our kids. We are the responsibility. We bear the responsibility for the things they decide. That's the way that God's ordered it. We are the leaders of the home. And that comes with a lot of stress. It comes with a lot of responsibility. And it comes with a lot of, a lot of turmoil. But God designed us to handle that turmoil. Can you imagine throwing your wife under that level of stress? It's just, mm. it's it's baffling. When you switch the roles, it doesn't work because it really is a high level yeah. of stress to truly be a leader. Yeah, it's borderline abusive, you could yeah. say, to switch I, those I roles. I believe that it would be. Yeah. Yeah. So if we want a strong society, if we want good political uh, laws and strong political leaders, it all starts in the home as the most fundamental political unit 
ever created. And that, and then even further, it starts uh, with the marriage, in the marriage, the, the man and the woman in the marriage, but the man has the responsibility. So we want to fix our nation. We got to fix the men. That's, that is the goal. And I think that's one of the main goals of the Sons of Liberty podcast is to reach out to young men in New England because we're a New England-based podcast. And, yep. um, it, we want to reach out to young men in New England and say, hey, there's, there is an opportunity here for you. Society has been lying to you. you. They have been teaching you things that are incorrect and making you believe that you are evil for wanting to take care of other people or even having the desire or inclination to aggression or violence in any capacity. And that's just awful. And that's, and that's, and that's so sad. So transitioning here to a more of a, of, of a political view of this, um, I wanted to bring up a story and then bring up kind of a different, uh, a, bring, a different subject here. So while we were in Arizona, we, we went to Chick-fil-A one night and then we got into this, wicked long argument <laughs> about theocracies okay okay so i bring that up be only because um i we were arguing on different sides of this and later after we got home like a week later us boys us guys we were talking about it and i think we might actually agree because we were we didn't define our terms correctly so the in in order to have what this definition of a theocracy um, actually purports to uh, create in society in order to have that we need strong men so what exactly we we we, uh, we looked this up in the webster was it? webster's 1828 the classic yes dictionary. the greatest dictionary the great ever. dictionary yep and yes the way you were defining theocracy was correct i was completely wrong on the way i was defining what a theocracy was for my entire life and i think i just bought the live society that a theocracy is a state church that forces everybody to, uh, like, we'll take Christianity, for example, who forces everybody, uh, that basically the clergy is the president, and it's all top-down, and it's akin to, like, how, how Islam is, is run in Middle Eastern, how Islam runs certain Middle Eastern countries. Like, that is a authoritarian or, theocracy, or but a real theocracy— I was going to say another example of that would be like what the Roman Catholic Church was doing over in over in England at the time, where yes, even though yes. technically you still had a king, the king had radically no power compared to the pope at the time. Yeah, and they were burning Protestants at the stake mm -hmm. because they weren't they were disagreeing. So that is an authoritarian theocracy. But we the the true dictionary that we all that we all the Webster's eight twenty eight dictionary. The one we actually trust because it, it was it, written by a man. It. Re <laughs> 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 it references theocracy as it, it, a theocracy. It references what the Hebrews had set up in the book of Judges, where God was at the top. You had representatives of judges underneath, um, and then you had the people at the bottom. So it was a bottom-up approach. It started with the people. Each person had their own representative slash judge, and then it all it made its way all the way up to Moses, who was kind of like the top dog. But Moses, he was still under God. So that is how they defined theocracy. And we argued on and on for probably over an hour. I mean, we sure. got this some guy behind us complained to one of the <laughs> managers because <laughs> what we were talking about. So uh, I, I wanted to go back to that because to kind of, uh, um, I don't know, to clarify for everybody, what is a theocracy and how is it different from what the left says Christians want government to look like as a top-down authoritarian regime when that's simply not the case 
Yeah, so I, I think that it's it's vastly different because, you know, for a long time, we've been told that that we need a separation of church and state, that all the founding fathers were for a, a separation of church and state. That's not true to an extent. Certainly, we should not have the church in power, nor should we have the state interfering in the, in, in the church. However, with that being said, I think it's really important to note that God's law needs to be the law. And I, I think that uh, a true testament of that is that all laws are based in morality. And you'll hear, you'll hear this from leftists all the time. You can't legislate morality, so don't even try. And it's like, so what are we legislating then? What, what are your laws? You've, you've outlawed murder. We're just literally, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and We're it's, just it's, legislating your morality. Every it, piece of legislation is someone's morality. And, and they'll try to tell you, they'll try to get you, they'll go, well, actually, you're legislating what's best for society, what promotes human flourishment. And it's like, is that a moral goal? You're still legislating morality. You're just trying to circumvent it by using different terminology. The truth is, mm. if you are going to have legislation at all, it is going to be based in something. It is going to be based in something moral. Whether that's moral relativism or not doesn't change the fact that it is going to be a form of morality. And so the question then is, and this aligns perfectly with the same question that you have to ask the home, you have to ask the church, and, and, and Joshua himself was even asked, which is, who are you serving? As for me and my house, as for me and my country, we will serve the Lord. And so if we, if we don't believe that God's law is the best law, then what laws are we basing our laws in? We have, we have no other objective method of governance. And so, yes, we do have to start in the home. We have to preach, especially to young men, because they're the next generation and they're rising up being lied to. They need to be the leaders. But once we have leaders, once we have young men rising up, we have to have a society that, that not only worships God at, at a large scale, but that follows the law of God. And so whether we, whether we use and a theocracy, I would, I would say also one, one thing to note about it is that a theocracy can be applied to most forms of government. I personally argue for a theocratic republic just because I think that that's the best form of government that's ever existed in the history of the world. But the, the concept of theocracy is basically like you've pointed out, just having God at the top and then your representatives understanding that the ultimate authority is God, because if you don't acknowledge that, what are you even acknowledging? You have no basis. And so we have to have a solid understanding of what a theocracy is. People miscommunicate it all the time. People lie about it all the time because they want to make you seem like a radical if you support it. But I, I came to terms a long time ago that I'm not scared to be called a radical, so I really don't care any two ways about it. Um, especially in, in today's world, I think it's a compliment to be a radical. But I, I think this is all to say that Ultimately, not only as Christians, but but as even the deists among the founding fathers pointed out, God's law is the law, and and we have to follow that law if we want any modicum of success. Realistically, and I had a conversation with an atheist one time. It actually brought me to tears later, reminiscing on it. He was one of my friends from college. I don't want to say friends. I'll say it. He was one of my acquaintances from college. He was an atheist. He'd been raised kind of in a Christian home, but the kind of Christian home where the parents preached it but didn't live it, and so it kind of turned him off entirely to Christianity. And he came to me saying he was an atheist, saying he didn't believe in God and saying that we didn't, you know, need God's law. And I asked him and I said, is raping a six-year-old girl wrong? And he looked at me, he said, yes. 
And then I said, why is it wrong? He's like, well, that's against the law. And I said, what about in Saudi Arabia where they're selling six-year-old girls for pigs? Is that, is that a good thing? And he said, no. I said, why not? And he said, because that's just bad. And I was like, that's just bad isn't an answer. That's just bad does not convince anyone. It isn't logical. It's not based in anything. It's a baseless presupposition you've made out of a need to dislike something. You can't give me a valid answer for that question because there literally isn't one other than you don't personally like it. And if that's the case and they want majority democracy rule, then it should be okay to rape six-year-old girls if enough of us agree on it. And yet almost every single atheist other than maybe a few pedos are, are totally in opposition to the concept of making that legal, even if it were democratically acceptable because it's wrong and they know it's wrong because they're made in the image of God. And so even to an atheist, I was able to convince him. He's like, okay, I'm good with following the Bible from a legal perspective because I, I understand we need a basis. And so it's like even an atheist who's willing to stop and think for a moment can understand we need an objective basis. We have to have something that we rely on to make our laws and to make objectively moral laws. Otherwise, like I said, in other countries, other things that we would deem entirely immoral become acceptable. If God is dead, if God is non-existent, and if we're unwilling to follow his law, then everything is acceptable and nothing is. Hmm. We have no basis and it's relativism. So yeah, I think that it's yeah, incredibly so important. Yeah, so let's bring that theocratic republic idea to America and realizing that's what we were founded in. Whether you like it or not, that's what we were founded in. We are, we are far away from that now, but that's what we were founded in in 1776. So do we... According to the Constitution, everything that is not enumerated, enu a, a enumerated power for the federal government in the Constitution is delegated to the states, which is the Tenth Amendment. So does the federal government have the authority, in your opinion, or should it have the authority to delegate these more, uh, I would, you know, moral laws like uh, rape and murder and abortion and all these very obvious things that to a Christian conservative would say, yes, that should be illegal. But technically speaking, I mean, if you factor in the 14th Amendment, that I, you could argue no, that it's you're asking, you're asking now, a hypothetical about, about if it's opposing yes. the Constitution. Is, is it like a fed or should all of these moral things be state issues? So you're wanting me to get myself in trouble here because 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 I have asking, no, I have part of the conversation <laughs> that we've had. So no, I, I have an answer for you, but it, it, conservatives generally don't like my answer because it opposes what they've treated as the word of God. And I, I, I'm, hmm. I'm not being facetious or, or sarcastic or demeaning when I say that, but they've treated the Constitution as on par with the word of God. And it isn't. Um, and I know that no one wants to hear this, especially not in politics, but the Constitution is not a document inspired by or dedicated to God, and thus it can have errors. It's, it's, it's needing to be understood, and I've, I, I, I actually have heard this, and I, I think this is a beautiful sentiment, which is that in a time where the Constitution and the Word of God are in opposition, I know where my allegiances lie. Mm. And so in such a time where something like rape is at play, or, or when they argue that, that abortion should be a state's rights issue, all I have to say is that in such a time where our culture or our document that, that, that runs our nation says that those things are state's issues, then we need to rewrite the document. Then we need to fix it. Because if, if we believe that God is the ultimate authority overall, then how can we give anyone the right in our country that, ex that believes that? Say, well, you live in a different part. You know, you live kind of more north of me, so it's okay if you kill your kids there. Well, you live kind of west of me. It's all right if you rape six-year-old girls over there. 
those things are horrendous evils that shouldn't exist in any part. I think there are some things, and this is actually what the founding fathers believed too, interestingly enough. I don't think they ever were concerned about things like rape or abortion, so they didn't make these laws that were granted the federal government powers. I think that if they, they saw today, they certainly would have. But the states had different things, right? Like the states had the full power to have specific denominations. There were states that were Presbyterian. There were states that did have state churches as, as the official governance of the state. Founding fathers were totally okay with that because the states were representative of smaller groups of people and knew what was best for their specific state, right? Obviously, someone in North Dakota is going to live a vastly different life from someone in New Mexico, for example. So there are things that should be left up to the states, you know, certain interpretations, certain decisions, um, maybe even taxes, you know, stuff like that. But when it comes to hard set bounds of morality, when it comes to things that would absolutely di displease God, that are absolute evils and, and degeneracies that are acceptable, those things, whether the Constitution permits it or not, absolutely should be illegal on a federal level. Yeah. So what about the prohibition? Back in the early 1900s, they, there was great political activism because of the alcoholism in America to outlaw it, and they outlawed it federally. And there was so much pushback and so much bootlegging and so much black market alcohol dealing that it was the only amendment, amendment in, the American, in, in American history that has ever been repealed. How does that, do you think that um, is in contradiction with your argument, or is alcohol a totally different thing because it's not inherently wrong? Yeah, I, I'll say two things. One, I think that alcohol is one of those things that I think would be left up to states because it's clearly not a scriptural displeasing thing to God. Alcoholism, certainly we could have that sort of discussion. But I mean, there's even verses that, that say that you can drink, you know, for, for a good heart. Like it's pretty clear that, you know, Jesus made wine. He wasn't throwing people into temptation. It's, it's totally acceptable to have a drink. And again, we could discuss alcoholism more in depth and decide, well, how much is too much? Where's the line, et cetera, et cetera. But I'd say that alcohol entirely and, and prohibiting it shouldn't be a federal issue because it's not, it's not a moral issue. On top of mm. that, I'd also say, and, and this gets into the larger depth of things, there is a vast difference between us discussing what form of government we should have and exactly down to the minute details what that government does, right? So I would say, okay, I will, I will happily discuss whether or not the federal government should step into this particular spot, like in a tiny little example, what should they do? And I'm willing to have that discussion. But why would we have that discussion if we haven't already decided that what's best is to follow God at, at the federal level? So if we're willing to sit down and say, you know what, following God is a good idea, how can we do that? Then that would be the point of having a republic, right? Why we have representatives, because there are different interpretations and we would need people that are smart and intelligent at helping run this country that can have those discussions, that can help make those decisions that hopefully, you know, that will probably make mistakes. I'd also say, um, if the worst thing that we do is we ban alcohol and you want to compare that to what we do when we don't have God in charge of our government, take a look at public schools in 2023 again, for example, or California is a good example of that. What's worse, alcohol banning or, or Los Angeles? It's like, okay, clearly, you know, because men are, are fallible creatures, we may not always make perfect decisions. And that's why we have mechanisms to make sure that we reverse those bad decisions. But if you're going to compare and say, okay, should we have a, a theocratic form of government where we follow God or not? Well, on the one hand, the worst thing you can do is say, well, we took it too far and we shouldn't have banned alcohol. On the other hand, we have no God and let's cut genitals off of children and teach them that you're bad Murder because them. you're white. 
It's like murder them in the womb. I think that those aren't even comparable. And so, and so, yeah, it's what prohibition did was a bad idea and it overstepped the bounds of the federal government. And I think that would be a discussion we could have in a theocracy. We could have a theocratic republic where we can still debate that and repeal things. But if we want to decide between a theocracy or a non-theocracy, compare the worst theocracy could do with California or Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah, I have, a, I have another question. Just we, I mean, we we could go into such depth with uh, the theocracy topic, but in terms of as conservatives today, there's a big push like against the FBI and things like a federal police force and all these things. So if you're enforcing these laws at a federal level, wouldn't that require them to be enforced at the federal level if you're if you're writing them? So would that require a when we have a massive country? Would that be something that the states would enforce, like these moral laws, like rape? and murder and the egregious ones or would that be something like that the federal government in terms of a, a large police force or even the military would that be something that how would it be enforced is on the federal level on the federal level yeah i mean and this again could be one of the big discussions we have on how exactly we're going to run it once we concur that we should have god in charge personally if i were not president but if i were a representative and i was trying to run a caucus and i was trying to decide what i would would purport to to fight for i probably fight for it to be on the state level um, just because I think a republic works best when you do have specific representation, people that know the people in their state best, even county level enforcement, um, city level enforcement. Uh, obviously, if there's a state out of line, that, that would be when the federal government needs to step in. Like if California, for example, mm -hmm. says, no, 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 it is okay to rape kids. We're not going to enforce it. Then we would need the federal government to do something because that's a horrendous evil, just as they should be doing now. They should absolutely be saying, no, you cannot cut the genitals of those kids. You cannot give them chemical castration. You cannot murder them. Those are things that the federal government should do. But from a, a, a certain level, and again, as you mentioned, it also has to be it has to be bottom up as well. We still need a revival. We still need strong men in states. We still need a strong family structure. And so I would like to believe that at such a point as we have a theocratic republic, that the states also are doing their fair share and are also enforcing moral law. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to, to bridge it because even— um it's like you have the 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 moral law at the federal level is almost more of a declaration that we are a nation that is going to serve God. And it's not almost as much about like, okay, we're we're really going into this theocracy thing, but it's like we are because it's still going to be enforced, like you said, at the state or local level. It's more of saying as a nation, this is who as for me and my nation, we will serve the Lord. So I'm actually more, a lot more on your side when I when I think about it as the way as it practically plays out. Because I think if you sit, think like ideo ideologically, you're like, that's kind of cr that's a th crazy authoritarian idea. But you actually look at how it plays out; it's not that crazy at all. It's logical, very logical. So yeah, and and not only instead that, of man, instead of man being God, you allow God to be God. It's it doesn't have to yep. be authoritarian. Yeah, and as as I can, I will continually point out um, wherever I get to talk. I, I think that it is entirely representative of pure logic, right? Like if, if you are in such a position where you have to decide how you're going to run our government, if your argument against, against having God in charge is, well, that's authoritarian, the federal government shouldn't get to decide, your only alternative to that is that anyone for themselves gets to decide, right? And so while that sounds good, and this is why a lot of people are libertarian, it sounds good, but then you'll have libertarians that oppose abortion and you're like, you know, that doesn't really make any sense because a libertarian is supposed to believe in ultimate freedom. 
And yet mm-hmm. you've, you've started saying, well, there is actually a time where I guess ultimate freedom isn't good. And, and I look at them and I say, yeah, when it opposes God. And so mm-hmm. you have to have the foundational basis and understanding that if you want a successful nation, and, and really this is true, and I'll, I'll point this out especially to you as younger guys. When I say younger guys, you're not that much younger than me. But I'll point <laughs> this out, and I've had to say this. We have to stop being afraid. If the worst thing that happens to us is we get called authoritarian for our principles, who cares? Cool. Call me authoritarian. I don't care. Grow up. If you call me a bigot, call me a bigot. I don't care. Call me what? It, call me a Nazi. Call me a racist. We have to stop being afraid of what people call us, what people think of us, and sacrificing our actual morals, our principles, our beliefs, and what we should stand for on that altar. We are a lot of times preconditioned to bow down on the altar of hedonism on the altar of, of the LGBTQ alphabet people we're preconditioned to bow down whenever we're in a position where people think that we don't look good or where we look bad. And I've, I've been told in some of my arguments where I've said, well, we should do this. And they say, well, that will make Christians look bad. And I'm like, what's worse Christians looking bad to the, the world that Jesus said they would hate us or us looking bad to God because we refuse to stand for what he called us to stand for. Mm, so yeah, yeah. I, I think and- that it's, it's, while we shouldn't be authoritarian, we also shouldn't be afraid of being called authoritarian if we actually stand for our beliefs. Yeah, do not fear man, fear God, mm-hmm. because he is the one do, who man can only destroy your body, but the God can of, throw you into hell. The fear of like, man that's is the, not that's the a beginning Bible of wisdom. The fear of man is not yeah. the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord yeah. is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. yeah, and to go, another thing that the libertarians forget is they'll say, oh, well, you know, as long as you're not hurting anybody else, you know, it's fine. But they forget, hold on a second. God is a person, right? So if you're sin- you're sinning in your own life, you're actually it is against a person because God is a person. You're grieving the heart of the Lord. You're grieving the heart of the Lord. And yeah. even in Genesis four, the when when uh, Cain is murdered, or is it who murdered who? Cain ma- er, murdered. Yeah, Cain Abel. murdered Abel. And yeah, and you look at it, and the Bible says the land cries out. And so there's something about the place where we live that when you when you allow certain sins to happen that it's almost like the land is cursed in, in a way. And I think that America, we, we better watch out if we keep allowing these things to happen because we're getting ready to have the judgment of God come pretty hard upon us if we don't if we don't um, really fight for this. So. Yeah, and something, going back to the theocratic republic, because I'm just asking you questions, not to try to like, there's no gotcha questions here. I'm simply, I'm forming my views on it as I'm talking to you about it because you... As far as conservatives go, you're definitely one of the more interesting conservatives to talk to yeah. with these views because you're you say things that seemingly sound crazy in today's nonsensical culture, but you say it in such a confident way with evidence, and it's very hard for me to actually refute any of what anything of what you're saying. But I do I am curious of how how do you approach uh, drug legalization and decriminalization and or do are you do you are you for making most drugs illegal like how, how in your ideal theocratic republic are most drugs legal or illegal and where is the line well and this is again we we i look back to scripture and i look back to the will of god because in a theocratic republic god is on top and so we have to have that basis so god calls us to be sober minded Right. That's 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 a command of the Lord is that we be sober minded. So, yeah, most 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 drugs would be decriminalized. I think there's also a time and place for certain drugs. Right. I think that there's a use for cannabis, specifically in a medicinal environment where someone is still sober minded. 
Um, I, I think that High there's five. certainly a use for that. Um, I don't think that there could be any argument for meth. I, I just, I, I don't think that you could say, well, medicinally, I use methamphetamines and cocaine. So I, I think that most drugs would be. Um, I also, I would say that this is would not be illegal. Yeah, would be illegal. Would be okay. I also don't think that this is simply a moral argument. I also think that there actually is a secularly um, viable argument to say that these drugs are bad, not just because they displease God but also the natural consequences of these these things, right? And a good example of that, one would be fentanyl as a, as a fantastic example of us distorting, right? If you're not sober-minded on fentanyl, that's because you died. Um, but also, <laughs> I think that one of one of the big things we have to understand is that the that the the natural world follows God, and we talked about this at the beginning when we talked about men and women and their roles and how women are the most empowered and they're following the law of God, and that's also concurrently when they're the most happy. And so we're saying that again with, with understanding with understanding drug use, right? I had a cousin, a biological cousin. I say biological because my mom was adopted. And so I have to specify between my adoptive cousin and my biological ones. But I had a biological cousin. She was literally probably the sweetest person I've ever met in my life. The most outgoing, uh, creative, fun, loving, just outrageously hilarious person. She loved being outside, hanging out with us, especially when we first met. I mean, when we first met her, it was crazy. Uh, then she got diagnosed with ADHD by a doctor and she'd come over and she was supposed to take her pills at 8 a.m. We'd get up at seven. We'd hang out for about an hour. She'd go crazy having so much fun with us. We'd be having a grand old time. She'd take her pills and for the rest of the day, she was a completely different person that no one really cared to mm -hmm. be around because these drugs mm -hmm. are not for human consumption because they impact us. And so I don't think sober minded only applies to when you're drunk. I think it implies to when you change the character of people. And so these mm -hmm. drugs like, like Ritalin, like, um, oh, what's, what's the ADHD drug? Um, Adderall, drugs like that. There we go. Adderall. Um, yeah. Those things, apart from just a moral answer of not being sober-minded, they're not good for you from either a medical perspective or a, a physical perspective of what you put out when, when, you're, when mm -hmm. you're drunk, when you're high, when you're, when you're shooting up. The person you've created, and this is most perfectly shown in Los Angeles, look what drugs do to people. Yes, it's against the law of God and it displeases God. And on that basis alone, we could outlaw them. But also it's not even good for society. And that's just greater argument for a theocratic republic being necessary in the natural world. Because the world that God created is also the world that God commanded. And so he commands us, be sober-minded. And just so inherently, in the city where there's the least sober-minded people, it's run down, people are homeless, there's starvation and death, and it's the most immoral city on the, on the planet, pretty much. And so, yeah, I would totally, at the federal level, decriminalize most. And that, again, would be a discussion for representatives to say, well, which drugs you mean, have... You mean criminalize? Yeah, did I say decriminalize? I mean criminalize. Yeah. And again, that okay. would be a practical discussion between representatives of, well, is this drug produce enough medical benefit that we could justify keeping it in existence only for those specific times? Those would be discussions. But by and large, I'd say we should criminalize most current drugs. Hmm. Yeah, and I think it's you. Um, you it's interesting that the, the atheists or the, the human secular humanists will say, um, oh, no, you know, like our laws and our morality is just based on what's best for society. Yet they tend to be the ones that say, oh, you know, let's legalize all drugs. It doesn't really, it doesn't follow. It's just another example of how illogical their, their worldview is. And um, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't understand it. So that's just a point there, pointing out the uh, illogical arguments of uh, atheists and yeah. we believe God. 
they're entirely logically inconsistent. And I'll point this out. This is why how I know we're headed for euthanasia, right? Because their argument is human flourishing, what's best for society. What they actually mean is whatever is best for the individual person and the individual person gets to decide. Hence the my body, my choice. It's not what actually is best for everyone. It's what's best for you. It's a hedonistic culture. And so we're on our way before, you know, we say, well, if old people want to die, that's what's best for them. They get to decide. And so then they get to commit euthanasia that's already happening in Canada and in a lot of other countries around the world. It's only a matter of time before it's here. And that's the same argument for the trans agenda on kids, right? Like, okay, yeah, they're five, but what's best for them? They get to decide that. It's 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 humanism and hedonism to such an extent that we've rejected God and we've even rejected a lack of selfishness. It's pure selfish desire. And they're even imparting it to kids. Yeah, and now pedophilia is being normalized as minor attracted persons, maps, like literally, I gotta say this because I called this years ago, and Go I'm not even it. I'm not even lying to you. I called Go this years ago when the trans stuff first started. I got in my car and it got taken down. But I I I made a video. I don't know where it is. I can't. I tried to find it, but I can't find it. I made a video and I said, "Listen to me." I said, "The trans agenda purports that kids have the mental ability to decide to change their gender." How long before that same ability plays over into having sex with other people? If they are capable enough to decide to change their gender and get these massive surgeries that are irreversible, are they not mentally mature enough to decide to have sex? And people were like, whoa, those aren't the same. You're crazy. And look what's (laughs) happening now. It was a matter of time. If you want to be logically consistent and say they're capable of making those big decisions, well, then why aren't they capable of making sexual ones? They are, if that's the case. And that's what they're saying. I mean, we live in Massachusetts. We're like an hour and a half from Boston. And we have Boston Children's Hospital, the largest children's hospital in the nation, was the first children's hospital to start performing gender-affirming hysterectomies on minors and doing gender transition for minors. And they're also saying that – and this was – they actually made a commercial. This is not just conspiracy theory. They made a commercial advertising these. And they've since taken it down because there was so much backlash. But they said that um, that a – a child as young as a baby, as an infant, or even in the womb, has the capacity to understand their sexuality. <laughs> but you, children's hospital said this. Wait, in the womb? Yep. But you can as kill them. As young as in the infancy well, wait, or in the, in the womb. You can womb, though. Hey, you can do whatever you want, man, though. And, you can and, do whatever and you want. that right there, Hunter, is exactly my point. It is a hedonistic, selfish culture. These people in charge don't actually believe that the people, that the kids in the womb aren't alive. They just believe that your rights, your personal hedonistic, selfish desire should be higher than their lives. So it's, mm. it's, it's not that they actually believe the things they try to claim to convince women to get abortions. It's entirely that they want people to do, and it's, it's, it's evidence that this is a spiritual, a spiritual battle. Because it is about fostering a culture where people do whatever they want, especially at other people's um, at other people's demise. And so, yes, they do actually believe that in the womb they are mentally there, that they are capable of making decisions, that they do exist. And yet they're okay with murdering them so long as it's what the mother wants. Because the only thing better than a person in the womb knowing their gender is a mom who's willing to kill that person in the womb. Yeah, and I think this is another huge testament to the fact that we're literally in a spiritual battle. You look at what the world looked like before Jesus came. You didn't have freedom. You didn't have personal liberty. That was, it was what the king said goes. The king is law. You get to do whatever, ever, 
uh, the king says you do. And the king gets to do whatever they want. Don't question the king. You can't question the king or else off with your head. And you look at you look at Christianity and you say, that's the only religion that says there is uh, there's actually another king. And that's Jesus. And that's that's God. And you look at when we leave all these things like uh, they have us focus on all these other these things that are terrible. And they're pushing they're pushing the, the globalists and the people up top are pushing all these crazy ideas because they don't want us to look at all the, the things that they're doing to oppress us. And they want us to be focused on on all these these wild, crazy things because they actually are the ones who serve the devil like the devil is is their father they're they're liars they're you look at i mean all these politicians they're liars and who if the bible says the bugs you will enjoy the bugs (laughs) if you're a liar (laughs) the devil is your father and that's what they're saying you have all these people they want us to be able to do whatever you want because that's when you're the biggest slave the bible says he who sins is a slave to sin so they actually want us to be all caught up in this this muck and in this sin and the thing that frees you is actually god's law and his justice because jesus enables you to resist sin and have self-control and you have uh noel harari i don't know if you, you know who Noel harari is he's one of the lead advisors to the world economic forum clash schwab yeah clash schwab yeah. and he basically said that um we're gonna have coming up here as as ai takes over and as computers take over on and us smart humans as we get more technological i'm paraphrasing but this is what he said um as we smart humans get more technologically advanced we're gonna have an entire class of useless people and the solution that we're gonna have to them is to stick them on computer games and load them up with drugs yep. and that's the same thing you're gonna you have people that are just you know they they want this division that the devil is a liar and he divides but the the only thing that really I mean, what else unites people other than other than God? I mean, throughout history, what else has done that? Not nothing. Okay. Every every other kingdom has has fallen. So if we're gonna if we're gonna as a country, if we're gonna serve the Lord, we've gotta acknowledge the spiritual battle that we're in and we're not gonna we can't act like these people are just oh, you know, you know, they just just let them do what they want with their body, like, you know, they're not hurting anybody. And it's like that's so false because the ideas, the people that are pushing these ideas on these people, and they're, they're victims. People that are transgender and that are kids and that are allowed to go through these be, uh, procedures are victims of the higher-up people that are abusing them and allowing these things to happen. So I think that we, like, we, we, play, we play games and we say, oh, I'm just going to be nice and all, you know, politically correct. You know, they're, they're people too. And it's like, yeah, they're people, but they're of the devil. <laughs> like, literally, that's what Jesus said, and, and I'm—, I'm sorry that that's not politically correct i'm actually not sorry um don't be sorry don't apologize like you said we need to stop apologizing and acknowledge what we're up against and we can say like there is repentance for even claus schwab or whatever i mean his conscience is probably seared but there could be um (laughs) and for all these people like yeah we need to acknowledge that like there is a devil and there's another kingdom that that is at war in us and in our nation and that if we don't live for God, that's what we're going to be left with. So yeah, I think like, that the whole argument with theocracy is so good for because it applies to all this. Yeah, and I'd like to make two points on that. The first being that, the, that as the same as, as laws that outlaw things are good when they're following God, we also have to understand the opposite is true, right? So you have rights. And I think this is one of the biggest fall downs of liberalism in the West. Liberalism, I mean, even started back in the 1600s. So I'm not even saying like the most recent 21st century iteration of it, but it was bound to happen based on what liberalism was founded in. But I think that one of the biggest things we have to understand and the founding fathers noted this was that where do our rights come from? They're given to us by our creator. 
those are what rights are. They're not granted to us by the government. Sure, they may be enshrined in the Constitution, but those are not the Constitution is not the guarantor of rights. It's just the, the defender of them in our specific country. The guarantor of rights is God and therefore his spoken word. And so when somebody tells you, I have the right to love who I want to love. The right, sir, do you? Because a right can only come from God. And I don't remember reading the verse where God said you had the right to love a man if you're a man. I, I must have missed that in my Bible. Um, but it's true. Rights come from God. And when we when we talk about rights, it has to be with the understanding that if it's if it's not a right given by God, then it isn't a right. You don't have a right to birth control. You don't have a right to homosexuality. You don't have a right to, to cut your genitals off. Those things are not rights. Just because modern liberalism in the West has purported them to be rights, they aren't. The only rights that we have are the rights that God has inherently provided to us when he made us in his image. And we do have rights. We have Christian liberty. But those rights are very specific and they're not when they despise and oppose God. And I think that that's one yes, of the really big mistakes that modern liberalism has made. Yes, and Christian liberty is not the freedom to do whatever you want. It's the freedom to do what you ought to do. Mm -hmm. that, yes. that is, it is, that's exactly what that means. And that's what it, the founders intended that to mean in the Constitution because they were coming out of a, out of, uh, the, from a, from a heritage of the of the Puritans that they weren't they ha they did not have the liberty to do what they ought to do so they gave so they enshrined the God-given right of liberty life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness which is the right to property so that they could be able to do what they ought to do not so that they can go like when 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 the founders gave us the First Amendment which enshrines our our right to um, free to, free and practice of religion and uh, that was not a, and the this is what the atheists will argue these days. It's not a right to be a Satanist and to put up uh, sa statues and altars of Satan in in the Capitol building like they did in Iowa. That that's not. They weren't fighting so people could be Satanists. They weren't fighting so they could be secularists. They were fighting so that people could have the religious liberty and capacity to worship God. And God alone. Yeah, and I will yeah, also at, point I mean, out okay. the historical context is incredibly important when we talk about that. In the time where the Constitution was written, the only religion in the United States was Christianity. That was it. There wasn't even another religion at all. And the reason they enshrined the freedom of religion had nothing to do with Buddhism or Hinduism or atheism or agnosticism. And it had everything to do with the fact that the, that the colonies at the time, the states, they, the colonies became the states, but you had the states that all had different churches, different state kind of religions that they followed, and they wanted to enshrine in the Constitution, okay, no matter, no matter what the states say, no matter what church there is, you have the freedom to be whatever denomination you want to be and to worship God in your biblical interpretation. Not that you have the freedom to worship the devil or have the freedom to worship nothing or to the freedom to worship self. Those, those were not yep. the purpose of the First Amendment. And the Founding Fathers, and I know this is an overused cliche, but they would be rolling over in their graves if they could see how people are twisting their words. Yeah, for sure. When you look at America is literally a covenant with God. Like, they, the Founders made a covenant with God. So people that, if you don't want to have a covenant with God, then maybe don't come here. I mean, I mean, just don't. I mean, you can go to Canada, you can go to Europe. Like, these people say, if Trump becomes president, I'm leaving for Canada. It's like... Okay. 
This isn't oh, an airport. I mean, Don't announce your departure. <laughs> Just leave. <laughs> right. But like, and even not that Trump makes America a Christian nation at all, but it's just like the point that if you're not up for that covenant, like they, um, and they even talk about like, um, the rights of the people to, to freely voluntarily create a government, like the people who founded this nation did that and they made a covenant to God. So you're actually the one who is against American history and against what America is about if you're if you're supporting all these crazy liberal ideas so I think that it's important to acknowledge our history and that you know we were messed up like we had slavery we had all the our, our pet sins of America but we were created fundamentally as a, a covenant with God and if you're not for that then get out not only that but you bring up slavery and it's a really interesting note um I hate Abraham Lincoln. We could get into that another time, <laughs> but but um, I, I will I will I will put this out there. Um, so we say that slavery was a horrendous evil, and people try to say, well, America did these these evils, and then they oppose Christianity in America. And I I want to ask those people, why do you think that people stopped having slaves? Do, why do you think that slavery came to an end in America before any other nation on the planet? Why do you think we were the only nation that had slaves for less than a hundred years from our founding before we ended it entirely? Why? Because of Christian values, because we believed it was wrong. It was immoral. The other states followed our influence because we were the ones to do it first. And so whenever somebody points out, they're like, oh yeah, well, religion is violent and extremist. And it's like, yeah, every single thing that you enjoy in America came because of religion, because of Christianity. The things that you say, oh, well, I believe in, in Black Lives Matter and I think that Christianity is evil. And it's like, wh who do you think values you? God values you. It, it, <laughs> Black Lives Matter refuses to acknowledge the fact that slavery was ended because people followed God, not because of some arbitrary new world moral relativism that they wish that it was. That's not what ended slavery. It's not what's going to end abortion. What ends super evil, super immoral things is the worship of God, the belief in God and the following of God's law. And this is another point people miss, even Christians, because I get, I don't know if you've faced this at all. I have a lot of people that get really angry at my show because they say I don't present the gospel enough, that I'm too focused on negative stuff and that the gospel isn't forefront. And I come to them and I say, first of all, if you listen to my show, I, I do present the gospel, um, especially not even just necessarily the saving gospel, but also the gospel of the understanding that there is freedom in Christ. But I explain to them, why did we need a savior? Like, what was the point of that? Why did Jesus die? What did he take on him before he died? Sin. If you don't first acknowledge that sin exists, that the devil exists, and that you are under him, then you have no need for a savior in the first place. If all I give you is the gospel without the understanding that you're in dire need of a savior, then it's a useless gospel. Being saved, saved from what? And that's true in politics too. Until we acknowledge that there is a fundamental moral problem, people won't need the solution. They don't care to have a solution because it's not a problem they see. That's true biblically and it's true, especially in our modern day culture. Until we have to first acknowledge this is a serious moral dilemma we're facing. It is a big moral problem with the degeneracy and the evil that is running rampant in our culture all across the country and all across the world. Once we admit that that's a big problem, then we can start on the steps to actually fix it. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a good segue to, to close up here. We're getting pretty long. This is probably going to be our longest episode, but you're it's welcome. Been a great conversation. You're so We've... very welcome. <laughs> 
thank you thank for you talking. You, you, <laughs> you heard you heard thought. me say uh, I hate Abraham Lincoln, and you're thinking about when you're going to have me on again, or or when you're not, so that no one ever <laughs> hears about that. <laughs> well, oh, well, yeah, we'll cut that part out. No. <laughs> <laughs> we censor people over here. That's what we liberty. do. We'll bleep you out, and then yeah, yes, we'll say. No, uh, you'll, you'll hear. Yes, I, we'll say. You'll hear. I hate beep. Just you'd have no idea who I actually hate because we have to worship Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Yes, we ha- we must worship him, just like Martin Luther King Jr. We have to worship him too. You understand? And I can go let, on like right, a twenty-minute rant podcast. of the. Of, I of know this. you could control we'll do an yourself. Episode. Abraham Lincoln, control Martin yourself. Luther King Jr., and whoever else that and you. JFK. I'm was JFK based a I'm, little bit. You know, I might say that he maybe was, maybe was more than people gave him credit for. All right. Well, that may, that'll be next episode. All right. Just to wrap us up, closing comments. What is? What do you want to, our audience to take away from this episode? I want you then, to take, oh yeah, and then also, and then also uh, plug your stuff, plug uh, your social media, your. Oh, that's what I was going to tell them to that, take away. Let people know. I was going to tell them to take <laughs> away that they should come to my show too. No. Um, yes. Yes. I, Leave I think, our show. Come on. <laughs> I think one of the uh, one of the major takeaways that needs to be here is I think twofold. One that we need to follow God. That that's an important, hugely important thing that our culture does, that we need to have a revival, that we need to be fighting for people to acknowledge God and to acknowledge his power and to know that Christ is king. Um, I think that's a beautiful sentiment and it's true. Not, not just our heavenly father, but Christ is the king on earth. He is our king and he needs to be represented as such in our government and in our lives. I also think that they need to take away how important that it is what we're doing. People like you guys and people like me, what we're doing is incredibly important. We're at a very volatile time in our history and we're on the precipice of falling one of two vastly different ways into absolute degeneracy that will end our nation or into revival that will that will lead back into a christian strong nation that will succeed for many many years to come we are the torchbearers here people like us that are out there on the front lines that are not afraid of being canceled we're not afraid of being called names for what we say we're not afraid of being fired we're not afraid of what they can do to us we are incredibly important. And I don't mean that from a prideful perspective. I mean that from an understanding that Christ has given us these talents for a reason and has called us to his mission for his glory. Not that we may boast, but that we may boast in him. So I think they need to take away that what we're doing here is very important. It may be a small podcast show now. It may be us just talking on random campuses, having random conversations with people at Chick-fil-A and random states. But what we do is incredibly important because it is going to have such a fundamental altering reality on the upcoming years and the upcoming generations. And I have never understood that more than becoming a father, than understanding that what I do will have such a generational impact. What am I leaving for my kids? And even if you don't have kids, what are you leaving for other people's kids? For when you do have kids, what are you creating now? And so what what we're doing specifically being a leader among leaders is incredibly important. We have to lead the next generation with the talents and the knowledge and the wisdom that God's given us. So yeah, I think that those are the two big things. Follow Christ and uh, help other people to learn to follow Christ and acknowledge that what we're doing is that important because it really is. It, it will make all the difference, um, especially in the 2020s. Um, so yeah, you guys, everybody should check me out. Um, I'm, I'm running on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts at the Michael Wilson Show. You just look it up. Uh, you can follow me on my socials at Sir Michael William. I'm on Instagram X, which is Twitter, but renamed um, and, and anywhere else, Facebook. So yeah, just check me out. Um, I'd love to have conversations with people. Um, I'm willing to have one-on-one conversations to talk to people and explain to you my position. A lot of people are believing that what I'm standing for is radical. And I say it absolutely is, but it's also true. 
Um, and so, yeah. yeah, I think that's really important. I'm, I was really happy to come on. I'm very glad that you guys were willing to have me. I got the text and I was like, dude, that'll be awesome. No better way to possibly spend yeah. my Tuesday afternoon. Um, it was a great time. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Of course. Yeah. yeah and sure. uh, we, we would love to get you like fly you up here and like oh, dude. have a Turning Point USA event. No, what we could do, because we're running the Turning Point USA chapter here. We could have an event. We could try to get 50, 100 people here and we could just do a round table like and we'll just talk like us three up on stage. We'll just chat. And we'll take questions from the audience, and that that would be a that would be a fun time. You're really fun. you're really tempting me now. <laughs> we'll have to, we'll talk we'll talk. All right, thank you so much, Michael, for coming on the show. Absolutely, thanks All right, for yeah, having and, me. Uh, thank you guys for watching. My name is Hunter Young. My name is Sam Mealy. and we are the, the Sons, Sons of Liberty. Liberty.